On any given day in Oklahoma, there are as many as 13,000 people in jail. Many, if not most, are waiting for their day in court simply because they are too poor to post bail. And if they're able to post bail, that might even disqualify them from having a public defender. Many, including my guest, believe there's a better, more just way to provide the poor their day in court. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading Podcast. On this episode, we're going to hear from Francie Ekwer Ekwu. Francie wears three very important hats in her quest for equal justice under the law. Her primary role is with the nonprofit organization, the Education and Employment Ministry, also known as TEAM, where she's the program director for the Oklahoma County Pretrial Jail Release Initiative. In addition, Francie is the Oklahoma County Community Sentencing Attorney for TEAM, and she is an assistant public defender for Oklahoma County. Francie, welcome to the Spirit of Leading podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I can tell from your resume and from looking at some of the aspects of your work, and I've read some articles about your work and also I've known about the team ministry for quite a while. I'm wondering, why exactly did you choose this particular calling in life for yourself? That's a loaded, good question. I think for for most people, a calling is something that's been on their life since they were born. Um, I believe that through my faith. And so uh, I would have to trace back to my childhood. I didn't know that I was growing up this way, but I was growing up as a child of an incarcerated parent. My mother was raising my brothers and I by herself, but also with a really large village in Arlington, Texas of people who cared to help her raise us in, in such a way that we could go forth and be successful I found out that my father was incarcerated when I was 16. At that point, it just shattered everything I ever knew about myself and my life and uh, my family and my, my place in the big picture of this world. And so I had an immediate need to understand my father and his existence as an incarcerated person very instantly. Uh, I didn't know that it was going to be what I would eventually work in, even at that age of 16. But as I navigated through college and uh, law school, I began to recognize that I did have a calling to work with individuals who were affected by incarceration, in particular, incarcerated parents. I had an internship in law school working in Chicago and throughout the state of Illinois with parents who were incarcerated, helping them with family law issues such as adoption, paternity, divorces, marriage, you know, just things like that. And through my work with that organization, I realized that this work was very therapeutic for me because it was helping me understand my own life and my father's life and his incarceration. And then I realized there is a huge systematic problem here and I can't just walk away from this internship thinking, oh, that was fun, that was great. I I got to go visit some prisons and 
some really cool people who are unfortunately in those prisons and just be done with it. I knew that this was going to be my, my calling, but as we all know, a calling is joyful and exciting and, and it gives you purpose, but it also gives you pain, stress, sorrow, and um, a lot of lost sleep. I continued my work when I got to Oklahoma. I reached out to Representative Jeannie McDaniels out of Tulsa, and she connected me to a statewide task force that works on issues concerning children of incarcerated parents. At one of those meetings, I met my current boss, Chris Steele, and I was fascinated by the work that team was doing. I decided to apply for a position with team. It was a position in case management where I was able to help people who were recently or soon to discharge from prison and help them get reacclimated to their life and their community um, across the state, but mainly in the Oklahoma City area. Once again, I'm falling in love, not necessarily with the work, but with the stories and the people that I was encountering. I passed the bar and, you know, got offered the opportunity to work in the Oklahoma County court system, specifically on bail and bond issues. And so that's, that's where I'm currently at. I'm working on criminal justice reform in the context of bail and bond issues in Oklahoma County. And it's still my calling and I love it. And I, I still get a chance to connect with parents who are affected by incarceration. And I still get a chance to learn about their children and hopefully be a positive impact on their children through my work helping their parents. That's my ultimate goal is to see each day maybe one less child who doesn't have to grow up the way I did or the way other children of incarcerated parents are growing up in Oklahoma. You know, the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of children who identify that way in Oklahoma is just sickening to me. And if, if I can be any part of helping those children, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's my calling. I've worked a lot with people and they say, well, I'm looking for my purpose in life. I'm waiting to figure out what that is so I know what to do next. And uh, a lot of times your purpose doesn't show up until you get busy doing what it is that you do. And then you realize that is your calling. And it sounds like it's kind of the way that worked with you. But uh, let's kind of back up a little bit because a lot of people just don't know what happens when people are arrested and they go, uh, they have to go to jail and have their moment uh, with the criminal justice system. So just kind of lead, lead us through that. Uh, say uh, you're detained and then you eventually are arrested. What happens from there through the posting of the bail and, and having sort of like that first appearance in court? So many things can happen during those times. The typical route of somebody that I would encounter would be that they are booked into the Oklahoma County Jail and they are told by the jail staff what their bond amount is, cash bond. There's what we call a bond schedule in Oklahoma County. It's kind of comparable to a menu mm -hmm. where a certain charge, certain charges carry certain bond amounts. And that's something that the sheriff has um, 
there at the jail in order to properly instruct people on what their bail is. So if the person has money to, to bail out in cash right away, they can. They can bail out in full or they can pay a percentage of the bail and utilize a bondsman. My clientele do not have money to even get close to thinking they're going to bond out. And so what then happens is they are booked in, they're put into an orange jumpsuit, assigned a cell, and that process in itself takes a really long time. You don't automatically go get into a cell as soon as you get booked in. It's a, on average, it's about a 12 hour process sometimes. Every now and then it goes down to six hours or something, but it takes the jail staff a really long time. I can't be sure why um, to get somebody booked in. So then from there, within 48 hours, that person is, is arraigned. And the arraignment is done by the assigned judge at the Oklahoma County Courthouse. At that point, the judge is able to tell them whether formal charges have actually been filed against them. And that is done by our district attorney. If the district attorney has seen the arrest report and actually put charges on that person, they are told what that is and then given a new bond amount because the bond amount could alter from when they were first arrested until the charges are brought. If no charge has been officially filed by the district attorney, the person is left to wait there. They can bond out or they wait there until charges are brought against them. However, there is what we call a 10-day rule. A person can only sit in custody without formal charges for 10 days before the arraignment judge is to release them. From there, the person has to stay apprised of whether or not formal charges have been brought against them. That is the kicker for most people because that requires having internet access, having knowledge of the systems that update people on whether or not they have formal charges brought against them. Most people do not know how to do either of those. And so they only find out about formal charges when they are arrested via warrant. So if the person is not released on the 10 day rule, but rather maybe the district attorney took four or five days, six days to file formal charges at that point again, Judge McCray will tell them what their actual charges are and what their new bond amount is. And if they're unable to bond out still, then unfortunately they sit in custody until their first court date. Their first court date, generally speaking, is 30 days away from the day they were formally arraigned with formal charges. When you say, what does that do to a person's life? I mean, if the person had anything going for them at all, a job, a family, a car, um, maybe they were working on a particular project, I mean, anything, that is completely disrupted. Mm -hmm. And the person can lose that, even their apartment, if they're not able to pay rent on sure. time or something like that. Statistics say even two days in a county jail across the nation can completely disrupt a person's life for the next six months of their life.
that's what we're trying to fight against and find reform for because we want to see people who are impoverished not this affected by the bail system because then they will become even more of an expense and even more of a potential danger to the community if they are left to fall down the rest of the channels of the system. Um, and by that, I mean eventually ending up in our mass incarceration crisis. Right. What does team actually do to help uh, mitigate these circumstances for certain individuals and how do you decide who to work with? We identify each person who has been arrested um, and brought to the Oklahoma County Jail and detained there every single day. We do this by having a presence at the arraignment hearings every single day. Now that is Monday through Friday that does not run on the weekends, but our presence there, we're able, we are able to hear and see each person who's there who has not bonded out yet and learn of learn bits and pieces of their situation as they describe uh, their situation to Judge McCray. From there, we gather a list of names that we think we could potentially help. In doing that, we're considering the current willingness of the judges, the current climate of bail reform and, and, and thoughts of, you know, people being released pre-trial. The judges can change very quickly because at the end of the day, if they sign a bond that is not a cash bond, it's an OR bond or a conditional bond of sorts, their name is on that piece of paper, is on that release. And if that person does something in the community new that is harmful or dangerous, their name is on that bond. Mm -hmm. And so they're very careful about who they consider for these types of bonds. So we have to learn the judges, what their willingness is, what their preferences are, and things of that nature. So as we're making the list, we're keeping that in mind, but we're, we're also citizens and we are also community members who wanna be safe and want to ensure that our community is not harmed by our actions and bonding people out. So we're considering, is, is this person ready for change? Is this person potentially dangerous mm -hmm. to the community? And so all of that goes into us creating our list. From there, we gather background checks and information that is a multi-state background check that we get from the sheriff's department. And then we conduct our very own Oklahoma state criminal history check. We interview each of those people right now via video um, in partnership with the public defender. We have a video screen set up there where we can interview people at the jail and learn about who they are. We don't just wanna see what their criminal history is and you know, um, judge them for what we see on paper. We want to learn if this is a mother, a father, a sister, a grandparent, you know, um, as, was this a taxpaying citizen through employment? Do they have medical issues that need to be considered in their release? Mm -hmm. So we learn everything about who they are from their own self-reporting. So you do have to take that with a grain of salt. We write a letter 
to the judge saying, dear judge, this is Mrs. So-and-so. Here's her criminal history, but here's who she says she is today. And if she is to be released by your honor, here is how team will help her. Mm -hmm. How team can help her is to connect her to a case manager. That case manager is there to be an ally and support her through her pretrial process. She might need help with housing. She might need help with transportation, identifying a social security office right. to visit, getting food stamps, getting a new telephone, maybe even a referral to DHS to see about where her children are now that she's been arrested. So the list goes on of what her needs could be. And the case manager is there to guide her through those things. She's also expected to follow another list of conditions, including reporting to that case manager, not having a firearm or a destructive device, uh, living at an approved residence, engaging in mental health and substance use treatment if that pertains to her, staying away from co-defendants, witnesses, and victims if that pertains to her, submitting to drug testing, and then submitting to any conditions in particular that the judge may place upon her. Well, that sounds like a, a long list of Yes, uh, of it is a long list, but yeah. imagine being in that position. Yes. You're, you're willing to do anything to get out of the jail because of the environment that the jail is, mm -hmm. but also if you've never had somebody say, hey, I'm willing to help you and I have the tools to help you, right. you're really eager to try to get that help. Right. So from there... Um, the case managers are helping them and they're really the true heroes in this whole operation that we run at team. I just, you know, I get to show up to court and brag on the people for how well they're doing or in the alternative, you know, um, disclose to the judge with integrity that this person is not doing the best that they've ever done. And um, there may need to be reconsideration for whether they're ready to be out on a bond. Um, I get to collaborate with the district attorney's office as well as the public defender's office and any other defense attorneys. Right. And in all, in doing all that, my personal goal is to see mitigation in order to ultimately see them avoid prison time. And so that is the full cycle of our program. Right. Then we do a follow-up after, after the case has been disposed However, it may be, it might be a plea deal, it may be a dismissal, it might be, you know, um, a probationary period or prison time, uh, hopefully not. But however the case gets disposed, then we go into a three-year follow-up and we are just checking in with that person and seeing how they're doing, offering any more help, right. but also tracking recidivism. Yeah. And we do have a really low recidivism rate since... We've been doing this since September 2017. We've bonded out a little over a thousand people at this point, and we have a five percent recidivism wow, rate, meaning um, five percent of those 1,000 people. Well, I would say five percent of about 800 of them committed, got arrested for a new charge, charged with those charges by the district attorney, and actually. Um, convicted on those new charges while they were on our bond. Yeah. So that's how we track recidivism. Well, what I kept hearing as you were describing that process was a lot of accountability that has to happen on the part, part, part of the individual that you're helping 
as well as uh, on a part of uh, the professionals there at team who are working with that individual. You've really got to stay on it. Absolutely. We stay on it. Our hours are from eight to four, but I guarantee you our case managers are working right now. We feel very rich in spirit and we love waking up to do what we're doing and we love our clientele and um, just we care to see them, you know, thrive more than we care to watch our pocketbooks build up, you know. That's why it's particularly a calling because it's as much of a service as it is it is anything else it's not just a payday it really is making a difference uh, what are some of the maybe a story or two of some of the people that you have seen really make a big uh, change during this process that they've uh, been able to get themselves sort of uh, back on track and uh, and make a profound difference in maybe the direction of their life while they're going through this process with team Oh, wow. There's so many of those individuals in particular. um, I won't say his last name, but Kenny, Kenny was an individual that we decided to bond out. We could, we could just tell even in his video arraignment that he needed a lot of help. He just looked very pitiful. And this is something I would say with him right next to me. He knows that. And um, Kenny's an older gentleman, maybe at the time in his early 40s. And um, and that, that's not older. That's just older than me. So I say that because a lot of my clientele, even though they're older than me, they still give us the respect as if we have authority. And right. it's, it's kind of just a beautiful relationship. But Kenny has struggled a lot of trauma in his life through losing family members and going to prison and having a long battle with substance use. And as soon as we got, as soon as we bonded him out, he told me he didn't have anywhere to live. And I called a local sober living house that very day. They took him in that very day because they have a strong partnership with team and they trust us and they know what we're doing. So they took Kenny for me right away and he just hit the ground running. He took control of his own sobriety and his, his life. And um, sure enough, he gets a job and he is loving his job. He is following all the rules of sober living. He is staying clean, but then he got into court and for whatever reason, the district attorney still wanted him to do 10 years in prison, but I just couldn't stomach it because I knew how hard he had been working. I knew how much of a change he had made. So I personally wrote a letter to the district attorney and to the DA telling them about all that and pleading with them not to send him to prison. They ultimately decided not to. They gave him longer probation and they kept him out of prison. And we kept in touch. You know, he's done some speaking engagements with me, but They actually gave him probation with community sentencing, which is another program that team operates. And that is a probation style program. Mm -hmm. So Kenny nicely transitioned from team pretrial to team community sentencing. And uh, he continued to thrive there. He completed his supervision requirements in, in three years and paid on his fines and did everything that the court asked him to do. And so after that, Uh, During that process, actually, he became a peer recovery support specialist 
working with an organization called Ocarta in Oklahoma City. And now he's the president of his sober living home. He is helping other people uh, gain and maintain sobriety. And he's just kind of a local hero for people who suffer with substance use addictions. And we're just extremely proud of him because he's over here helping us save more people, Mm -hmm. but our state wanted him to be in a prison cell right now. And so it's just really moving to see that one person's decision to give him mercy, it's really having a ripple effect in our community. And, you know, that that's the kind of aim that we have with each person we bond out. We want them all to be like Kenny, not necessarily doing what he's doing, but having that type of restoration and redemption in their life. Right. sounds to me like uh, one of the things that team uh, sort of helps out is to help people get clear about what they're trying to do. It's not just to stay out of jail. It's uh, to do something with their life that's different from what they've done in the past that caused them to be in their circumstances. That's exactly right. So uh, as, uh, as you've worked through these experiences uh, with the team and you know your own, uh, your own life story, uh, how particularly have the last few years really shaped you? How have they made you uh, different or changed you in some way? I will start with the fact that prior to this work, naturally, I was a very impatient person. I wanted things to just click and be done because they make sense and they're the right thing to do and it's the right thing that should happen right away. But I learned very quickly in this work that not everybody's interested in doing the right thing. And if, if, if they're not, they could potentially be convinced. Also, if they are interested in it, it's not necessarily right away on my timing. And so I've had to be patient getting all these results that I've been talking about for our clientele and staying in the storm until it passes and then we can come out and see the sunshine. It's just been a really big lesson in patience for me. I also didn't know a lot about mental health and the crisis that Oklahomans are in concerning mental health. Uh, 95 to 99% of our clientele identify, self-identify with needing or desiring mental health resources, whether it be treatment, a counselor, medication. Most of the situations that our clientele are in right now, it is because of their mental illness or a large part of it is because of their mental illness. So I learned that we are essentially incarcerating people because they are mentally ill and have not had correct help thus far. I have learned to love everyone for no reason at all. I mean, you you have to love people without reserve, without conditions, all the time to do this work. And I do, I was a big people person and I was, I did consider myself a person of faith who is called to love people, but this job really teaches you love beyond bounds Mm -hmm. that I just can't even describe to you. And it'd just be something you would have to know and and, and gain for yourself in, in this particular work. I've learned 
that although being a person with, um, I'm, a, I'm a biracial person, my mother is white, my father is Nigerian, I still present black, you know, and I don't get treated mixed, I don't get treated white, I get treated black, and especially in the criminal justice system, people who are actually arrested and booked in and facing charges in the criminal justice system, there is a large, very daunting, very hateful presence of systemic racism. And that's something that I even wake up and have to fight as an attorney every day, just within my profession and within the courthouse. And so it's not that I didn't know I was black or I didn't know that racism was out there, but I didn't know the depths of the hate. I didn't know the the evilness, or I didn't know the evilness of the hate and the results of the hate um, resulting in, in innocent people going to prison for long times and things of that nature. The systemic racism is within our community resources and economy, health issues, yeah. you know, yeah. residential right. issues, right. employment, homelessness. And then you get to policing and jailing, prosecuting, defending the judiciary and mass incarceration. People of color in our state are just at such a large, 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 large discriminatory disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned that we need a sustainable equality in all communities that could potentially keep people out of the criminal justice system, but getting everyone to agree that we even need equality has been so eye-opening in a way of, I'm just disappointed that not everyone wants that. I don't don't understand how everyone doesn't want that. Because of all that, I've had to learn self-care. I've had Mm -hmm. to learn how to go to bed at nine o'clock some nights, go to bed at eight o'clock some nights. You know, you have to get a lot of rest. I've learned to build relationships, being intentional about networking, intentional about letting people know that I'm passionate about this, I'm in this for the right reason, um, and respecting everyone that I come across, even in the face of them disrespecting me. You know, taking it into my personal life, I'm very intentional about loving on my son. He is a young brown boy, and, you know, he doesn't understand all these issues yet, but knowing what I know, I have to start teaching him now, even at the age of seven. And I'm intentional about that because I just can't even imagine him becoming one of the people that I've, you know, encountered in this job. But the reality is he very well could be. And um, I call on my father a lot. My father's in Nigeria and I, I pull on him for, strength, but also for understanding and um, also just to love on him because he experienced so many years incarcerated. And now that he's free, I'm sure his world is just very different and he doesn't understand a lot of things that we do. And so I'm, I'm just intentional about relationships as a result of working this job. Sounds like there's been a lot of uh, personal growing and soul searching and everything else going on in your life as a result of this. And that's a good thing. And, and, uh, cause we all, I think, uh, have to call ourselves to, to question at the soul, what I call at the soul level, 
to really think about who we are and how our life is being impacted by our own experiences. From my own experiences of uh, being around people who say things and do things and act in certain ways that are that is uh, certainly ugly toward other races, I'm going, well, I don't understand that. And we'd say, well, we can change the law and on and on and on. And I said, well, no, changing the law might work to some in some respect, but you have to change your heart. Uh, it's the heart and soul of a person that has to make the change because, uh, well, I, I was doing a, a diversity workshop years ago for a group of men, and, uh, and it was actually a sexual harassment workshop, a hostile work environment kind of thing. And uh, these were macho kind of guys, and I, and I was sort of called in and said, okay, we want you to present this to everybody, so I was. And uh, I mean, from the start, I got like hoots and, call, and you know, they were just kind of shouting me down about, uh, about the, it was a crazy thing, it's a man's world, and on and on and on. I'm now talking about the change of heart here. And finally, I had to say, I said, listen, some of you guys, because you're good people, you get this. You understand that you just don't treat women this way. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. But for those of you who just don't get it, we have laws. And so, so we want to remind you that, uh, you know, if you were, you're either going to treat people right because you know it's the right thing to do, or you're going to treat them right because as a culture, as a nation, as a community, we say, we ain't going there. We, we will not allow that to happen. And I think uh, in our culture right now, because we're recording this in June of 2020, uh, we're sort of at, a, at this crossroads in our country where there is, there is a clarion call for soul searching that says, wait, as human beings and children of God or Christians or whatever faith that you have, we just don't go there. And, uh, and that is not who we are. These are, this is not the people that we are, and those of you who are, we have laws to sort of rein that in, and I think that's, you know, we're seeing a lot of that sort of play out now, and uh, it's, it's been a long, long time coming, and hopefully it won't fall on deaf ears. I say all that to say I really uh, appreciate you expressing yourself that way so that we can kind of get uh, a sense of, from someone who's experiencing, who's seeing that, among the people you serve and also among your own life experience, uh, how, uh, how unjust a lot of that is and how sad, really sad, some of that behavior is. A leader is someone who helps us get places we cannot or will not go alone. We don't know how to get there. We don't know... Uh, maybe we have a little bit uh, of a lapse of courage or, or whatever it is. We just can't get there ourselves. So we look to a leader to help us make that tra transition and make that move. So when you look to that kind of person, uh, what are you looking for? What do you want in a leader? I will have to start with love. And I think you have to recognize there's different types of love. So, I, you know, I'm referring to just a love for people and that love carries out in everything that that person does because, you know, it, it's going to lead to compassion for others and understanding and a consideration for other people and how your leadership affects other people. I'm looking for integrity. Always do the right thing, even if nobody's looking. That's just extremely important because 
integrity is important for accountability, which I also look for is, can we count on you to always be doing the right thing and the best thing for us as we follow you? I'm looking for respect. It's one of my big, big pillars in life is to just respect the position that you're in, respect the people that follow you, respect those that you are serving or having an impact upon. I look for well thought out and researched guidance. You know, if I'm following you, I would like to feel that you're planned and that you are knowledgeable on where we are going and and how to get there. Strategic is important. Um, And I think just relatable, like that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, but can you relate to me as a follower? Can you, under, can you understand that I'm intentionally following you and putting myself in that position and then make sure you don't step on my toes concerning that, you know, and, and mentally put me in a place of, oh, you're just my follower, but mm-hmm. are you seeking to empower me to one day be a leader? That's what I'm looking for. Well, those are all great qualities. And I, I would say that, that, that if I were looking for someone to, that I would trust as my own leader, I would uh, I would certainly be looking for many of those same qualities. Because uh, stop and think about this: uh, when we turn and look to someone to lead us, it's because we know we can't get there. We don't know how. We don't know. We need someone who has the ability to get us to a, a future that we all can find a part of. Uh, something that I can relate to myself, you know, as a as a person who's wanting to improve himself in a certain way. So those characteristics uh, really do do matter. As we think about uh, the young people coming up, uh, certainly of your generation or those even younger than you, uh, if you wanted to give them some information, just to tell them why it would be important, for example, for them to become an advocate for a cause they believe in, how they would show leadership in that, in that activity, what's something that you would want to leave them with? I would tell them first, thank you, because It is a service to even dream about helping someone else. Um, You are answering your human call to help other people. So thank you for listening to yourself and knowing that that thought was laid upon you for a reason to act on it. Know that you're not alone. There's other people that fight for causes just like the one that you're interested in, or maybe not. Maybe you're going to trailblaze that, but there are other people there to guide you. So with that said, if you have the thought about being an advocate, you have to go seek out someone who is already an advocate in that field. And you have to beg them to be your mentor, take them to coffee or lunch and pick their brain, take notes, understand the issues that you are getting ready to face if you jump into advocacy within that field. And then go do your research and and get to work in volunteering. You've got to start somewhere. So you've got to give some some free hours in, whether you plan on being a volunteer for long term or you plan on eventually trying to work in that field, you have to put in your free hours first. So don't let that uh, deter you. Also, don't let the, the harsh realities or the obstacles of being an advocate deter you. 
you have to embrace those. They are a part of the journey. Those obstacles and adversities that arise as you advocate, those are your notches on your belt. They are, um, they are signs that you are doing the right thing because nothing worth advocating for comes easy. And so when the hard times come, pat yourself on the back because you've arrived and you're doing what you want to be doing. You're doing what you said you would do and you're likely doing a really good job at it. So uh, I would just leave them with that encouragement that we need you. Every, every advocate in the world needs you to do whatever it is you're interested in. And um, if they ever need advice or help or if I could ever be of help to them, they're certainly welcome to reach out to me. Well, and we want to thank you, Francie, for that good advice and certainly for your work and the example that you're setting for uh, a lot of us. And uh, also thank you for uh, having the heart to reach out to people who just really don't know where to turn sometimes in their moment of need. And uh, I'm sure that uh, in ways that maybe even you don't know, uh, they they are there they regard what you do as a gift to them and uh, they will repay that in some way that uh, by paying it forward to someone else perhaps in the future that needs that kind of help we can hope for that thank you francie ekwer ekwu pre-trial site supervisor and attorney who works with the education and employment ministry who assists families people and their families who are encountering the oklahoma criminal justice system So thanks so much for your work, and uh, thank you for joining us on the Spirit of Leading podcast, Francie. Thank you, Garland. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this installment of the Spirit of Leading. Thanks for listening, and I want to encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the Spirit of Leading at work and in the community. If you're watching for the next installment of the Spirit of Leading, you can sign up to join the Empowered, and you'll receive notifications when the next installment is published. And you'll also receive links to my Empowering Thoughts weekly podcast. So until next time, I urge you to live empowered each and every day, to encourage the spirit, to enliven the heart, to enlighten the mind, and to enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters.